Hello and welcome to Legally Speaking, a podcast series that aims to make the law and legal issues that affect your everyday life more accessible and maybe a little less scary. As this series is brought to you by Eisen Harrison Solicitors, the Yorkshire law firm, I'm joined today by James Thompson, Head of Clinical Negligence for Eisen Harrison. Welcome, James. Hi. In this episode, we'll be discussing every parent's worst fear, birth injury. James, not only is this a very sensitive subject area, but I I can imagine it's quite broad too. What is actually classed as a birth injury? So a birth injury can be an injury to mum or the baby, which occurs during the labour or at the delivery. Could you give us a couple of examples of of what that would be? Uh, So an example of a birth injury for mum, uh, which we often see, uh, could be where they have sustained a third or fourth degree tear, which either wasn't recognised at the time uh, or perhaps wasn't repaired properly. Um, it might not have been repaired in the in the right place or by somebody with appropriate skill. An example of a birth injury for a child might be where there has been distress during the labour um, and there's been a delay in their delivery. And it could be that there's been some kind of impairment of the blood flow which is what carries the oxygen to the baby's brain and as you can imagine if there's distress and there is uh, an impairment of oxygen then the baby needs to be delivered in a timely manner but provide obviously a safe and timely manner so that's where hypoxic injuries can occur and hypoxic means starvation of oxygen now that as you can imagine as the longer it goes on uh, the more damage that will be sustained to the baby's brain so we see, unfortunately, an awful lot of hyper, hypoxic brain injuries in children, um, which form the basis of the claim. There's a lot going on. These things may not come to light straight away. Is there any specific time limit on bringing a claim and, and who actually brings that claim? So a claim has to be brought within three years. Uh, if it's a child, the three years won't start to run until they're 18. Uh, if somebody doesn't have capacity, then it won't start to run at all. However, once the clock starts running, it doesn't stop. Um, The claim, if it's obviously for an adult, will be brought by themselves if they have capacity. If it's brought on behalf of a child, it's uh, brought by what's known as a litigation friend, and that's often mum or dad. How long, I mean, it's like asking how long is a piece of string. Every case is is different, but roughly speaking, how long does that process take with a claim? That's a good question. Um, So what I would say is uh, we we sort of chop it up into bite-sized chunks. So what we would be aiming to do is complete our initial investigation within about 12 to 18 months. We would then present the case to the other side. Now, if they come back with admissions, as you can imagine, it will be quicker than if they come back and fight us on every single point. Um, I would say that the average case would probably take two to three years. But if we're talking about a child, we can't settle the case until the child is old enough that their injuries have all manifest. Um, So depending on the nature of the injury, it probably means that you wouldn't be looking to finally settle a child's case until at least eight years of age, but perhaps even older. Now, there are things that we can do along the way. So for instance, if you win the case, uh, and it might be that you win it when they're, say, three years old, we would be looking to obtain an interim payment on account of damages to put in place the care package which they require. And then it might be that, you know, we'll come, you know, that will continue um, for the intervening years. And then when they're old enough, we'll look to finally value the claim and get it settled. But that could be in total, like I say, eight years, 11 years. It just depends on when they come to us and, and the individual child. 
Now, given that potential uh, length of time, obviously you mentioned the interim payment, which is a good thing to know, Mm -hmm. but it sounds like it could potentially be, if it does become protracted and there's quite a fight back, an expensive option. Is legal aid available? So legal aid is available for children who have sustained neurological injury at or around birth. Uh, Sadly, it's no longer available for adults or children who don't meet that criteria. But there are other funding options available. So I'm sure most listeners will be familiar with the the no win, no fee model. Um, That's, I would say, probably applicable to about 99% of all the other cases which don't meet the requirements for legal aid. And what can, whether it's a parent or a child, what can actually be claimed for? Okay, so there are, briefly, there are three different types of damages. You've got general damages, which is for the injury itself, which uh, oddly is usually the lowest figure. Um, Then you have past losses, which is any out-of-pocket expenses which have been incurred prior to trial. And then you've got future losses, which is everything from trial, obviously, to the end of the claimant's lifetime. Now, uh, what those past and future damages can consist of uh, can be anything from loss of earnings, loss of pension, um, care and assistance, aids and equipment, therapy, the, the list goes on. Now our job is to make sure that we investigate that properly and we get we claim the right damages for the individual dictated by the injuries that they've sustained. As you said earlier, sometimes symptoms don't manifest until a later date. What, what if my child doesn't have a diagnosis yet, but clearly there's, there's some issue? So without a diagnosis, there isn't much we can really do, um, but you do need to keep a careful eye on it because sometimes, as you say, um, you know, a diagnosis can take years to reach. Sometimes they're a process of elimination. But in order to establish a legal claim, we've got to prove initially two things. We've got to prove that the care was negligent and we've got to prove that it caused an injury which otherwise uh, would have been avoided but for that negligence. So you can imagine if, if we don't know what the diagnosis is, we don't know what the injury is, we can't prove that it, that would have been avoided. Now James, I believe there's a, a body called the Healthcare Safety Investigation Branch who can actually invite people with potential claims in for a maternity investigation. If I, for instance, was asked to take part in one of these investigations, what does that actually mean and what does it entail? Okay, so uh, the HSIB um, can be brought in by the NHS resolution, which is essentially like an insurer for the NHS trusts. And they will investigate certain types of incidents. Um, The incidents which they will cover uh, will be where there's a stillbirth. Now, there's a particular type, so it has to be where the baby was alive at the start of the labour, but sadly, if they're born without any signs of life, then they may be asked to investigate that. Um, Other types of incidents which they can investigate would be where there's a a neonatal death, so that again would be when the baby's born alive, but would die uh, within the first week of life. More commonly, in terms of the cases that we see uh, coming through, is where there's potential... um, of the baby having sustained a severe brain injury. Triggers for that can be where the baby has been therapeutically cooled. So that's when obviously the baby goes onto one of these mats and they are essentially uh, hypothermia is induced. Um, It can be examples where there's been um, a diagnosis already of a hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. It can also cover maternal deaths as well during labour. 
so they are brought in by the NHS and then the family will be invited to take part. So the first thing would be they would, they would contact you and they would ask if they can access your medical records. Um, they should keep you in the loop as to what's going on, um, but ultimately they will be tasked with preparing a report as to what happened and, and essentially providing um, their opinion as to whether or not things were done properly and, and could and should things have been done differently. Now, if you are invited to take part in an HSIB investigation, um, one of the best things that you can do is obviously um, get independent legal advice from a clinical negligence specialist. And, and when I say specialist, um, there are things that you can look out for to ensure that the, the firm of solicitors that you're contacting actually are proper specialists and not just holding themselves out to be specialists. So one of the best examples would be to look for the Law Society Clinical Negligence Accreditation. Um, it's, uh, it, it shows that they really do know what they're doing. Some of the people listening may have come across this or may have heard of this before, but what exactly is the NHS Early Notification Scheme if there is already an HSIB investigation option? So the... NHS uh, early notification scheme um, kind of goes hand in hand with the, with the HSIB investigation such that when the HSIB complete their investigation they will then pass their findings back to the NHS and what they are aiming for is to identify which of those cases are potentially going to be those where the there's been a catastrophic brain injury and the theory is that they will look at it and perhaps um, hold their hands up to where they got things wrong at an early stage so as to ideally try and save time and costs of the legal investigation. It's still early days with the early notification scheme um, and what I would say is again if you have been contacted or been advised that um, you know you or your child has, is, has formed part of this uh, notification scheme Again, the best thing that you can do is, is, is seek independent legal advice because at the end of the day, um, whilst the NHS may be proactive and, and hopefully that can help uh, reduce the time of the case, um, ultimately they're going to be having their best interests at heart and obviously what you need is an independent legal advisor who has your best interests at heart. Final question that I have for you, James, is, is one that's been submitted uh, by a regular listener to uh, Legally Speaking. Is the fact that my child has herbs palsy always because the midwife or the obstetrician was at fault? Short answer is no. Um, herbs palsy uh, is uh, is a first of all it's a it's a nerve injury which has been sustained by a child. It is a injury of the brachial plexus, which is a bundle of nerves which runs down the the side of the neck, essentially from the um, neck down the shoulder. Now. Herbs palsy or damage to the brachial plexus nerves can be sustained um, both negligently and non-negligently. More often where you see a negligently sustained injury is where the, the babies become stuck during the actual delivery and that's, that's shoulder dystocia. That's when the shoulder becomes stuck underneath the, uh, the mother's pubic bone. Now, when that happens, when shoulder dystocia happens, um, midwives or obstetricians should be able to spot that readily. And there are a number of uh, things that they should do at that point. And obviously, one of the first things they should do is, is not be applying any kind of traction to the baby's head other than what they call diagnostic traction or routine traction, which is just to, in, just to check to see whether or not the baby is in fact stuck. What you're not trying to do is actually pull the baby out and deliver it. So 
if you've got an example of shoulder dystocia, perhaps it wasn't recognised, perhaps you have got a midwife or an obstetrician who is in fact still trying to pull on that baby's head, despite the fact it's not going to be going anywhere because of the shoulder stuck, that can stretch the brachial plexus nerves, that can cause injury. Um, you can have a, uh, examples of brachial plexus injury sustained as a result of the propulsive forces of labour, but it is is quite technical and you've really got to look at the detail. And again, um, you really need a specialist. Now, there are only three uh, sets of solicitors in the country who are recommended by the Herbs Palsy Group, um, and we are one of those firms. So what I would say is if your child does have an Herbs Palsy, best thing you can do, seek independent legal advice. Ideally, come to us, have a chat. Uh, we'll go through uh, exactly what happened um, because sometimes herbs palsies can be avoided and it's it's not even um, looking at the, the nature of the delivery. Perhaps they should never have been delivered vaginally in the first place. Perhaps um, because of the circumstances, they should have been delivered by elective cesarean section, you know, from 37 weeks. So, it's, it's very fact-specific and there's no substitute for just picking up the phone and giving us a call and we'll talk you through it and we'll tell you what we think. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Um, I would say that gives a really good overview uh, for anybody looking for information in this area or just to find out more and, and in this case, something very specific. So thank you for answering that. If you do have any further questions, uh, we recommend that you follow up with Ison Harrison. You can get in touch uh, via isonharrison.co.uk and I'm sure James and his team will be more than happy to help.